and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast, a podcast aimed at making your quilting life more fun and creative while connecting with quilters just like you. Join the staff of the magazines you love for a great episode filled with tips and tricks. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Today is an exciting day because it's our 550th episode. Can you believe it? That is so many episodes. And since 550 seemed like such a significant number, we're doing a special Ask Us Anything podcast to celebrate the reason our podcast is so great. And that's our amazing listeners and their desire to learn and connect. You know, I'm so, so grateful for all of you. And I just love all the questions that came in from our listeners. Now, there are a lot of questions, so we're just going to dive right in. So this first question comes from Sewing Quilting Mom. She says, how do you pick fabrics that look good together? Well, Sewing Quilting Mom, you are not alone in the struggle. Many quilters feel like they just don't have an eye for choosing colors and prints that look good together. So here's a few quick tips for developing that skill more. First, let's talk about inspiration because inspiration is everywhere, but we have a few specific places to look to help you get started. So you can start with a photo that you love, whether it's one you've taken yourself or one you've seen online. And you know, these photos can be from your vacations, from magazines, from artwork you love. And if you are finding yourself drawn to a particular image, a lot of times it's because of the colors. So why not try pulling together fabrics that have a similar look? You can also use a multicolor fabric print to pull together colors. And you don't necessarily have to plan to use that multicolor fabric print in your quilt. You're just using it because the fabric designer has already done the work of pulling together colors in one print, which is kind of like pulling together colors for one quilt. So you can just base those colors off the ones you see in that fabric print to help you curate a color palette. And you can also look at the salvage of fabric for a color palette. So if you aren't familiar with fabric selvages, you can just take a look along the bottom edge of your fabric and you'll usually see like the name of the fabric line, the fabric designer's names, and then there'll be some colored dots. And these colored dots are each individual ink color used in that fabric. So if the fabric has multiple colored dots, you'll see that there's multiple colors in the fabric. So you can use those color dots to help curate a color palette. You can also look at things like your wardrobe or home decor. Um, usually we're drawn to kind of specific color palettes. Um, so you can start there and kind of add in extra colors or you know swap some out for new combinations, but starting with the things you're seeing around your home or in your closet um, can help you find a starting point. And then once you've figured out a color palette you want to use, think about the scale of your prints in your project. 
So a lot of times we'll say like it's nice to have a range of large, medium, and small prints because it adds texture and movement to your quilt. Um, but of course, like if you're averse to large prints, I know I am, um, you can even try adding something like, you know, a small stripe or even like a, a floral because sometimes even those small prints can make a bigger impact against like solids or tone on tones. Um, and then you also just want to check your contrast. So contrast means having a mix of light, medium, and dark fabrics. And the best way to see if you have enough contrast is to take a photo of your fabrics together um, on your phone and you can change it to black and white. And this will allow you to see the contrast without being distracted by the colors themselves. And if all your fabrics are in, you know, the same in contrast, you may end up with a quilt design that looks a little undefined or mushy. So hopefully these tips help you become more confident in choosing colors. Next, we have a few questions from Margaret. First, she asks, why are some quilt pieces cut at such challenging measurements like three and seven eighths instead of something easy like four inches. Margaret, I think most quilters are in the exact same boat with you on this. So let me give you, you know, the technical answer and then I'll just share my opinion. So because we use a quarter inch seam to sew pieces together, all that quilt, quilt math is based on quarter inch and even eighth of an inch measurements especially when we're talking about diagonal measurements of squares, like if you're cutting things diagonally, sewing things diagonally. And that makes the numbers that you're cutting pieces weird sometimes. So these numbers are based on the most accurate way to make a quilt though. So if you cut a square at three and seven eighths inch for like a triangle square, for instance, and so the most perfect quarter inch seam your resulting triangle square will be exactly the size you need, no trimming required. But almost every quilter I know sizes those measurements up because we know that our cutting and sewing isn't perfect and that we'll need to do a little trimming to make the unit accurate after piecing it together. So just know that the math is there in those weird sizes because math is accurate and it's a technically accurate way to write a pattern but that it's also normal to just oversize things and spend the extra time trimming down. And then Margaret's next question is, what do you do if you end up with blocks of slightly differing sizes? Do you always square up your finished blocks? So great question. Uh, one of the best things you can do if you're struggling with blocks not coming out the right size is to check every unit's size as you're sewing it and fix it as needed because it's much easier to re-sew something small like a triangle square or a nine patch unit that's not the right size than try to fix a larger block made up of many units. So the pattern usually will tell you what the size of each unit should be. So if you were supposed to have something that's five inches, and it's closer to five and a half inches, you may want to check your seam allowance or do a little trimming if possible to make the size accurate 
before you piece it to any other units. But there are some tricks we've learned over the years to help fix blocks that aren't the right size. So if the discrepancy between the blocks you're joining together is small, like a quarter inch or less, you can actually let your sewing machine ease in the difference. So to do this, you will layer your two blocks, you know, right sides together on the bed of your machine with the smaller block on top. And then the feed dogs of your machine, you know, those teeth on the bottom that pull the fabric through, they will pull that larger block on the bottom through the machine slightly faster than the top block. And that will ease in the excess fabric as you sew the blocks together. Now this tip has worked magic for me for years. I use it all the time in my sewing room to help just make units line up when they're just a little bit off. Um, and I will just say when you're doing this, you don't want to be sewing with like a walking foot or anything on the top block to help push it through the machine evenly. You only want your bottom feed dogs activated. So if some of your blocks are too large and the block is off by like an eighth of an inch, you can trim it down to size. Now this tip doesn't work for blocks with points at the edges, like star blocks, because if you're going to trim, you're trimming into the seam allowance and then when you piece it to other blocks, you'll be cutting off the points of those angled pieces on the edges. And that can visually alter kind of the look of your whole quilt. But if it's something like, you know, like a log cabin block, those can be trimmed just a little bit without really visually altering its finished look too much. And if some of your blocks are too small, you can add borders or sometimes we call them coping strips um, to bring them to a uniform size. So borders can be added around the entire block or just one or two sides. And if you use you know, similar color or even the same print if you have extras as your background fabric, it will blend into the block and you will barely notice. So I hope these tips help, Margaret. We're going to take a quick ad break, but we'll be back soon with more questions from our listeners. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Our next question is from Ellie of Palm Coast, Florida, and she says, have you ever cut your binding fabric using a pinking blade in your rotary cutter? I have a problem with my binding fabric fraying so much. What are your thoughts, experiences? Uh, well, Ellie, I 100% have to admit that I've never cut binding with a pinking blade and uh, have never experienced fraying on my binding, so I'm now feeling very lucky to not have experienced that problem because it does sound very frustrating. But I see no harm in doing that uh, as long as the pinking blade's points are less than a quarter inch wide and you know, preferably around the eighth inch mark, 
so that when you're sewing that quarter inch seam, your seam is still secure. Um, and then when you're sewing the binding to the quilt, just make sure that you're always measuring your seam from the outside of the point to just keep it accurate the whole way. Uh, good luck with your binding and kind of let us know how it goes when you try it. I'm so curious. Okay, this next question is from Paulette. She says, I was wondering how other people organize their quilt pieces prior to sewing together and when putting blocks together. I thought that would be an interesting topic. Love this question, Paulette. Uh, you know, since there's no right or wrong way to organize your quilt pieces, quilters do this in a variety of ways, depending on what works best for them. And it's so fun to see how everyone does it differently. So here are some common ways I have seen people organize their pieces. Some people lay out their pieces on a portable design board or a small cutting mat. And these are usually around like 12 to 16 inches. And that way they can carry their pieces in the correct order from their cutting station to their pressing station to their sewing machine easily. And this is actually my preferred method for keeping my pieces in order for block assembly. But some quilters like to chain piece all their blocks at a time instead of doing one at a time. So they like to stack their pieces. So in that case, I've seen people stack all their units for say the upper left corner on top of one another and then add a small label to the stack, such as a small sticky note, um, painter's tape, or even store-bought labels that say a letter or number. For putting blocks or rows together, I think the pin method is very popular. So people will add flathead pins to their blocks or rows. Um, maybe they do it in order of rainbow color, or they use a marker to write numbers on the flathead pins to remember the order. And they also sell, you know, pre-numbered pins just for this purpose. And um, they may choose to always add the pin to, say, the top left corner or the left of the row, so they always know which way the block or row should face as they're taking them over to their sewing machine. You can also use pins to add small pieces of paper with notes in order or orientation if that makes more sense to you. So I hope this satisf satisfies your curiosity, Paulette, and I would love to know how others do this too, so feel free to email in with your ideas. So this next question is from Amy Osmus. She asks, how do you find time to quilt? I feel like the you know, simplest and most honest answer I can give is that I'm in a season in my life where I don't have extra responsibilities. I have no kids to take care of, um, and my parents are in good health, so I'm not acting as a caretaker. And I think everyone has different seasons of life where they sew more and where they sew less based on a lot of different factors, and that is okay. It's not a race to see who quilts the most, um, you know, kind of despite that pressure we may feel based on what we're seeing on Instagram or in our quilting Facebook groups. I sew a lot during the winter, uh, but as soon as I can work more in the yard and spend more time outdoors or traveling, I get a lot less quilting done. But in general, I do try to sit down at my sewing machine at least a few times a week and have, um, and I also have like an ongoing handwork project, so that I have options of what I'm working on and where I can work on things. 
And many times I get the most sewing done on weekends. So on weekends, I still wake up very early uh, and my husband likes to sleep in. So I use that as my time to sew. And we all deserve that time to spend on our hobbies. Uh, And I promise if you prioritize that time, you will see how to make room in your schedule for it. Um, I just read a great book on this very topic called Find Your Unicorn Space, Reclaim Your Creative Life in a Too Busy World by Eve Roski, and I highly, highly recommend it. This next question is from Sarah H. She says, Years ago, I was fortunate to receive my grandmother's Singer Featherweight sewing machine. I have not used it in quite a while as I was short on time and space. I am hoping to start using it again on small projects and would love to make my mom a Mother's Day gift this year on her mom's old machine. I did have the machine checked and serviced when I first received it. I wanted to ask if you have a recommended checklist or suggestions for going through a vintage machine or even a machine that has sat for a while. I would happily take my featherweight to a professional, but I'm hours away from a sewing machine service shop. First of all, Sarah, the idea to use your grandmother's sewing machine to sew your mother a gift is just the sweetest thing I've ever heard. Um, She will be so happy to get such a meaningful present. And luckily, if your machine was serviced and everything was in good working order, there's only a few simple things we suggest for getting your machine up and running again. First, clean the machine. So you can use a damp rag to clean the outside of the machine and then open up or open it up wherever you can and use a small brush or a pipe cleaner to remove any dust and lint from the inside of your machine around the bobbin case, you know, all the nooks and crannies. Um, hopefully when you packed it away, it was covered. So maybe it's not in too, you know, dusty shape. Next, you want to oil your machine. So most vintage machines do require oil to work properly. Although if we're, you know, if you're getting out a newer machine um, that you just haven't used in a while, probably no oil is needed. A lot of more modern machines don't require oil. So you want to check the manual to make sure. Usually older machines do need to be oiled every six months or more often if they're getting a lot of use. So you want to use a special oil made for sewing machines, and then you'll want to check the manual for specific instructions for your machine, but generally they need oil around parts of your machine that move, such as, you know, the bobbin case holder, the hand wheel, and the parts that the hand wheel moves. And then you want to help the oil move around the parts, either by, you know, turning the hand crank or gently tipping your machine so the oil can slide around. And then just change the machine's needle, uh, the bobbin thread, because it's probably old if it's still threaded, and then grab new thread or just re-thread the machine so that everything is starting off on like the right foot. And then you want to try sewing. So it can actually take a little time for the machine to be fully oiled as it's sewing. So you definitely want to use scraps of fabric to sew um, because oil may, you know, come out right at the beginning. And during that time, you want to see if the tension is working right, if everything sounds and looks okay. 
And after a little time sewing on your scrap fabric, you should notice that your machine sounds quieter and is kind of less clunky feeling. And that means the oil is fully worked through the machine and should be ready to go. Now, if things aren't sewing smoothly, you definitely want to check the manual for some basic troubleshooting first. So don't assume the worst right away. Um, usually you can Google the name of your machine to find the right manual online. And for featherweight fans, look at the website, The Featherweight Shop. They have all the old manuals and so many tutorials on how to clean and fix and even learn about the history of your machine. So it's a really helpful resource. But if things aren't sewing correctly, it really could be a simple fix such as you know, tension settings, the stitch settings, uh, the feed dogs not being activated, you know, a lot of times on those older machines, those settings aren't always obvious. Um, so the manual can tell you where and how to look for these problems. So hopefully you have smooth sewing with your machine and you can avoid taking it into a repair person. So good luck sewing on that fabulous machine and sewing a nice gift for your mother. Okay, this next question comes from T Tiger One. They say nesting seams. Any advice? <laughs> uh, so yes, for those who don't know, nesting seams means aligning the seams of each, you know, row so that they not only line up nicely, but they almost seem to fit together like pieces of a puzzle. And this is done through a combination of pressing, pinning, and stitching. Generally, a pattern may tell you how to press your seams purposely so your units nest together and you can avoid having all the seams face the same way and cause a lot of extra bulk. But if a pattern doesn't tell you how to press, you have to do a little detective work on your own. Um, but generally, you'll want to see how you can press your seams in opposite directions by rows within units and then within the block so that everything can nest. Many times this happens naturally when you press everything to the darker color fabrics in your block or, or the unpieced units of a block or quilt like setting squares or sashing, uh, but that's not always the case. So it may take a little trial and error while you're assembling and don't be afraid to press a seam a different way than you originally intended if it's not fitting together with the other pieces correctly. Um, and, and also just because a seam nests nicely together doesn't mean it won't shift while you're sewing. So I like to actually align all my seams and then I put two pins in an X shape where the seam nests to help keep the pieces from shifting in either direction as I sew. Okay, I'm handing the mic over to Jody for this next question because she is a total pro on the topic. So take it away, Jody. This is Jody Sanders. We received the following request from Jalisa's Sewing. She said, I'd love to hear tips and tricks for sewing small items or small quilt blocks. Well, Jalisa, I have five tips for you for sewing small quilt blocks, which actually happen to be my favorite thing to sew. Tip number one is for your fabric choice. So when you're making small blocks, you should use small prints or tone-on-tones. 
large-scale florals, novelty prints, or fabrics with a lot of colors won't look the same once you cut them into such a small size. And your carefully pieced blocks can lack definition and become muddled. Number two is to scale down the size of your tools. So my favorite ruler when making small blocks is a six and a half inch square. Most of my blocks finish at six inches or smaller, so the six and a half inch ruler can be used to square up blocks as well as to cut small pieces. For minis, I use an eight and a half by 11 inch mat. The small mat easily turns on a table, so when you're cutting, you can rotate everything on the mat, and then you don't have to be moving your fabric. And then the third tool to scale down is your rotary cutter. Normally, I use a 45 millimeter rotary cutter, but for small blocks, I use a 28 millimeter size. Tip number three involves setting up your sewing machine. So when you're working with small pieces, any variations in a seam allowance can really add up. To get the most accurate quarter inch seam, try using a quarter inch foot and swapping your throat plate for a straight stitch plate if you have one. Because the straight stitch plate doesn't have that wide opening that the standard stitch plate does, there's less of a chance for the small pieces to get pulled down into the machine when you're sewing. You can also use a leader and an ender to help with that as well. It's a good idea to shorten your stitch length a bit and use a stiletto if you find that the pieces are a bit fussy and hard to hold on to. Tip number four is to select a quilting design that's appropriate for small blocks. Simple quilting designs enhance the pieced portions. So cables, cross-hatching, and echo quilting all work well. A feather wreath is probably less desirable design on a mini quilt because the proportion is just all wrong and you probably won't actually see much of the design or understand what it is. I happen to machine quilt most of my small quilts, but small blocks are the perfect place to give hand quilting a try. Another thing as you're putting your quilt together is to consider using flannel in place of a thicker batting. And finally, the fifth tip involves the final step of making the small quilt, and that is the binding. Try using a single fold binding, cutting the strips one and a quarter inches wide instead of the double fold binding. The single fold is less bulky and the corners are much easier to miter. Well, Jalisa, I hope these tips help you so easily and accurately when you get ready to use those small pieces. Thanks, Jody. So it's time for one more ad break, but more questions are on the way. Welcome back. This question is from Jan. She says, maybe a strange question, but what exactly does a magazine editor do, especially in the digital age? What does your daily schedule look like? What are your responsibilities? I've just always wondered. Thank you for the interest, Jan. Um, so our staff is made up of six people and we, we publish 12 magazines each year. And these people all have very different jobs to help get the magazines out the door and into the hands of our readers. So I will break it down a little bit. First, our magazine editors 
Um, they curate and write all the content you see in the magazines, and that's including quilt patterns, profiles on designers, product reviews, and more. So there is a lot of writing and research involved. They also work with all the quilt designers we feature in our magazine to come up with kind of the best design for our readers and then also like the timing of the magazine. So sometimes working on them on colors, fabrics, size of quilts, um, and maybe even working with them on the timing of a new book or fabric line they have coming out so that we feature their project at the exact right time for them. And then writing the pattern, writing all the tips and tricks and, you know, how-tos for the patterns, and, and then checking the pattern and the math multiple times and just refining and refining and refining until it's the most accurate and clear pattern we can make. Um, and they also... Um, make many of the sewn samples you see in the magazine for photography, um, and then the color options we feature in our magazines. And then next we have our art directors, and they design the magazine and make it look just the prettiest. So they do all the planning for the photos you see in the magazine. So finding the beautiful locations, um, picking the colors, the furniture, and the props that you see in the photos. And they spend days and days each month in the photo studio to make sure that the photos are perfect. There's also just so much, you know, other random photography that happens with all of our product features and our how-to tips. So, um, you know, our profiles. So there's, you know, they're handling a lot of that. And then they also work with all of the illustrations and the diagrams you see in the magazine to show step-by-step -step how we make that quilt. And they do the laying out of the entire magazine just to ensure that things are easy to read, they look inviting, they showcase the quilts in the best way. And you mentioned being a magazine editor in a digital age. Um, well, no magazine editor in the whole world uh, for any magazine only works on magazines anymore. Every single person on our staff uh, you hear on our podcast, uh, you will see in our videos, you'll see them on social media, you'll see their patterns or their writing on our website. Um, we think of magazines as much more than just the physical product that you would hold in your hands. Um, it's really a large brand that can reach quilters wherever they are, you know, whether they're our magazine subscribers, our podcast listeners, people searching on Google, our Instagram followers, you know, all of those things. So we all work on many different parts and pieces of both the print and the digital brands to create just the best products. And um, we're actually hoping to share more of the behind the scenes of our jobs in future months through some fun videos we're planning. So hopefully you'll follow along with those to see more. This question comes from KnitMom53, and she says, Do you always use a quarter inch, or do you sew with the scant quarter inch? I always have trouble getting my pieces to line up. Uh, those pesky seam allowances strike again. You know, here, here are my thoughts about this. Most patterns are written for an accurate quarter inch seam allowance. So if your units and blocks are coming out the exact right size, you can continue to use a quarter inch seam while sewing. Um, but some units, such as 
triangle squares, flying geese, um, and square in a square blocks have a natural bump in the seam where the fabric is folded and pressed open, which uh, can cause your pieces to turn out smaller than intended. Um, this can also happen if you are sewing together pieces that have a lot of seams coming together in the same place or a lot of bulk. It can kind of make your seam allowance um, just not, not come out the right size or fit, fit correctly. So um, if this is happening, sewing with that scant quarter inch seam, which is approximately just two tiny threads smaller than that quarter inch seam, allows that little bit of extra room to accommodate for the folding and pressing of the fabric or the bulk of the fabric. So, um, you know, scant quarter inch if you're having trouble with your blocks turning out the right size. But if you're not, just ignore that scant quarter inch and stick with the normal quarter inch. Okay, and now my coworker Allison has graciously offered to answer these last few questions since I am running out of breath here. <laughs> so take it away, Allison. This is Allison, the designer of Quilts and More. This first question is from Kelly Cromey in Lakeville, Minnesota. She asks, any tips for picking out backings or do you have a podcast that addresses this? There are many ways you can approach choosing fabric to put on the back of a quilt. If you have extra blocks or fabric from your quilt top, you can piece them together to make a scrappier back that feels similar to the front. The backing is also a great place to showcase larger prints that you don't want to cut into smaller pieces. This is my personal favorite way to choose backing fabric. I try to find a large scale print that has similar colors to the fabrics in the quilt top. That way the back still coordinates, but it has its own personality. Keep in mind that the busier your backing fabric, the less your quilting will show and vice versa. If you want more information about choosing backing, you can listen to episode 547 of our podcast. This next question comes from Roxanne Lowe in McCleary, Washington. She wants to know, when making borders, do you stitch the strips end to end or diagonally? I can't decide the best way to do it, so I'm asking the experts. There are certainly pros and cons to each method. If you join strips end to end, it uses less fabric because you're not stitching on the diagonal and trimming away excess. Straight seams also allow you to match up prints easier, such as stripes or distinct patterns. However, straight seams tend to show up more in a finished quilt. When stitching on the diagonal, you do have to consider how much fabric you'll be trimming away. The wider the border, the more fabric it'll take because the seam will be longer. Diagonals also add a bias element, which can increase the possibility of wavy borders. So make sure to use plenty of pins and press instead of iron because ironing and pushing the fabric can result in stretching. One of the perks of diagonal piecing is that the seams are less obvious once the top has been quilted. How you decide to piece your border might also depend on the situation. I recently made a scrappy border and used straight seams because the rest of the quilt had vertical and horizontal seams. If I'm using one fabric for the border, I like to use a diagonal seam so it's less obvious where the pieces join. Thanks so much, Allison. And that's it for today's show. Now, I know we covered a lot of ground today. We talked about a lot of different topics. Um, 
So I am going to make a list in our show notes of everything we covered, and I will link to any resource we mentioned in the show there, um, and also have links to more information for these things. So visit our show notes to explore these topics a little more. And before we leave, I have to just say one more big thank you to all of our listeners for making 550 podcast episodes possible. Uh, We're truly so honored. And to continue to celebrate a little, here's a review of our podcast. And this one comes from Quilter FM. And they say, best quilting podcast. It is full of the best great tips and tricks and just about everything that pertains to quilting. I learn something new all the time. I look forward to each new episode. Lindsay and her colleagues are so encouraging and positive. Thanks for a great show and wonderful magazines too. So thank you so much, Quilter FM. This means the most to me. And if this review is yours, please email me at apqpodcast at meredith.com. That's listed in the show notes so that I can send you a thank you gift. And if you love the show, keep the positive reviews coming. It helps quilters find us so we can continue to build the best podcast group. Everybody have a great week. Hi all, and thanks for listening. Keep in touch. American Patchwork and Quilting is on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at All People Quilt. Email us at apqpodcast at meredith.com. Resources for this week can be found at allpeoplequilt.com slash podcast. And if you love the American Patchwork and Quilting podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app for free. And don't forget to rate and review the show. It helps other quilters find us. Have a creative week.